This is the Morning Rush. Coming up on today's show, we'll check in on how the Nats, O's, and Bucks fared yesterday. Once again, not well. Only one team, one of those three teams, did not lose yesterday, and that's because uh, they didn't play. The 2021 NFL season got underway last night with the Hall of Fame game. We'll look at that. One uh, Pac-12 AD speaks out about the rumored merger with the Big 12. And it's Friday, which means my main man Joe Shuda has another Rush of Friday feature for us. Uh, it's been It's the first in a long time because I haven't been here. <laughs> The last three Fridays. But since I'm here now, we have another Rush Friday feature. In the spirit of the summer games in Tokyo, uh, today's guest on the feature, 1972 gold medal winner Dave Waddle. He won the gold medal in the 800 meters. It's the greatest comeback in the history of track and field. He was... Dead last for 500 meters. And then went on to win the race, win the gold, which at the time, I don't know if it is still, at the time was the closest uh, finish in Olympic history. So gold medal winner Dave Waddle, the subject of our Rush Friday feature coming up uh, in the 7 o'clock hour. All that and more coming up in the next two hours. Of the morning rush. Good morning to you. How the heck are you? So glad to have you on board. So glad you could take some time to tune in and hang out as we kick off this Friday morning, wrapping up another work week. Flying solo today. The venerable one, uh, Mike Burke, not here today. Of course, uh, that was planned. Mike's only here on uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. I must fly a solo on Monday and Friday. Today is uh, difficult because I am dead tired. You know, you know how much how much sleep I've averaged this uh, this week, and I say this not for pity, because it's my fault. I don't go to bed earlier. I say this not for sympathy. I just say I just stated this fact just because I'm averaging about four hours of sleep a night uh, this week. Last night, no exception. And I woke up this morning. I have a habit. I don't know what it is. I don't know why it happens. But I wake up even for on a four-hour, you know sleep, I still wake up in the middle of the night, which is weird. Like seven, eight hours, I get it. But even four hours, I still wake up in the middle of it all for whatever reason. I I can't explain it. So I woke up before the alarm this morning, right? As I usually do, (laughs) except this morning, it was 316. And my alarm goes off at 320. Don't you hate that? Don't you? Oh, it's just awful. Yeah, I wake up, I'm like, ah, you know, it's probably like 12, 30, 1 o'clock. Sometimes you can just tell, right? You wake up enough in the middle of the night, 
like us old old folks do, you kind of get an idea, a feeling of what time of night it is. Could be early, could be, you know, 1231, could be two. You kind of, there's a, just a feeling about it. And I woke up this morning and it felt like it was like, ah, it's like one o'clock. I'll be able to roll over and go back to bed. Nah, 316. And I'm not going back to bed for three minutes. So I got my day started a little earlier uh, than I planned. So I'm sitting here this morning and Mike and I talked about it yesterday off the air about how sometimes you just have to flip the switch. And and I've said it before. I'm so glad there aren't cameras in this studio as far as, as far as I know anyway, because if you would see me minutes before the show starts, it's not pretty. Like I'm, I'm I'm laying here, my head on the table, just (laughs) Praying for death. But as soon as 6 o'clock hits, it's time to flip the switch and do the show. It's it's uh, it's just what you do. Anyway. Several ways to get involved on the show, as always. It is encouraged. It is recommended. Hit me up on Twitter at uh, WCMD Morning Rush. Uh, my page at Rush Tony C. On Facebook at WCMD Cumberland Radio. Rush line is open, 301-759-2628. 301-759-2628. And it doesn't help that the uh, breakfast burritos I had at 4 o'clock this morning, uh, they aren't, you know, they aren't sitting well at the moment. Where was I? Oh, 301-759-2628. Right, right, right. And, of course, our podcast page on the free Podbean app where we upload every show every day, minus commercials, just for you. If you miss any part of the show, it's on the podcast page. Yesterday was a tale of two halves. The first hour, in my uh, humble opinion, was terrible. From my part. From my part. Uh, it wasn't it wasn't a good hour yesterday. Second hour was much better. First hour, I, I had issues. So who the hell knows what these next two hours are going to be like? But you can you can check it all out on the podcast page. All right, ah, uh, what are we doing? Let's get this show started as we get it. I don't know why. Like I don't know. Like I don't know. Then we're going to start this show with a rock around the region because we start the show like that every single show for the past two years. So let's do this. I want to rock! And we start not with Major League Baseball, no, but the NFL, the National Football League. The Steelers and Cowboys kicked off the preseason in Canton last night with the annual Hall of Fame game. Turn and the give, a little stutter step, down to the goal line and into the end zone for that Steelers touchdown is Kalen Bellage. And I tell you what, I don't like to dig up past names, but there was a little echo of Le'Veon Bell in that little stutter step. (laughs) The call on the Steelers radio network, Bill Hillgrove, the call. 16-3 the final, Pittsburgh gets the win. Uh, That's the good news. 
The bad news, no team has ever won the Hall of Fame game and the Super Bowl in the same season, as you take after whatever it's worth. Uh, Najee Harris, uh, the rookie for Pittsburgh, uh, seven carries for 22 yards in his Steelers debut. Uh, Chase Claypool led Pittsburgh with uh, three catches for 62 yards. More on this game in just a bit. Now we go to Major League Baseball. The Nationals were trying to avoid a four-game sweep at the hands of the Phillies in D.C. The Nats led 5-3 in the ninth inning with Kyle Finnegan on the mound trying to close things out. He did not. The 1-1, swing and a drive, left center field. It's well hit. Yadiel Hernandez won't get it. It's going to the wall. One run will score. Harper flying around third. He will score, and Reese Hoskins has come through. A two-run double. The call on WIP, not one, but two uh, two-run doubles in the ninth for Philadelphia. Reese Hoskins and JT Realmuto. Rallied the Phils past the Nats 7-6 to get that four-game sweep. Finnegan got touched up for all four runs on three hits and a walk. Bryce Harper homered in the second inning for Philly. His sixth homer this season against the Nationals. He now has 250 home runs for his career. Josh Bell hit a three-run homer for Washington. Elsewhere, the Reds and Pirates opened a four-game series in Cincinnati, and the Reds wasted no time uh, getting out front. And Votto swings and hammers one. Deep right center field. Way back there. Goodbye into the first row of seats just above the 370 sign. Votto's 22nd home run of the year. The call on 700 WLW. Three-run homers for Joey Votto and Eugenio Suarez in a six-run second inning. And since he went on to beat the Bucs 7-4, only two of those six runs were earned thanks to an error by second baseman Wilmore Defoe, former national. Hoy Park and Kevin Newman each had two hits for the Pirates, who have lost four or five of the Reds, by the way, have won seven of nine. And the Orioles were off yesterday, so that meant at least they couldn't lose. Uh, They will open a weekend series at home tonight against the AL East-leading Rays. Uh, John Means will get the start for the O's. Ryan Yarbrough will take the bump, as the kids say, for Tampa. And that is uh, your Rock Around the Region brought to you by the Caporale Group. Uh, Things are getting tight, oh, by the way, in the NL East. Because the Mets just continue uh, to choke things away. They only lead the Phillies now by a half game. And they play each other this weekend. I do believe that series is in is it in New York, I think. So the Mets and Phils, uh, the Phillies could be in first place by the time this weekend is over. The Braves, they are surging. They're 6-4 and four in their last 10. They are a game and a half behind the Mets. So really, it's going to come down. It's a three-team race in the East. Mets, Phils, Braves. Uh, Nats and Marlins, they're finished. They, uh, they're playing for next year. The Reds, uh, since they uh, were playing the Pirates, they are now seven games behind Milwaukee uh, in the NL Central. But they're only three games behind San Diego for the second wild card spot. 
And if you watched any of that Pirates-Reds game uh, last night, first of all, uh, I don't know what you're doing with your life. Second of all, <laughs> I can't say that because I watched it. Here's the Cincinnati team. Again, seven games out of first, but still squarely in the wild card hunt. There was nobody at Great American Ballpark last night. Nobody. Now, I understand it's a Thursday night game, but it's still summertime. There's no school or anything like that. I know people have to get up and go to work on Fridays. But that place was empty. That The, the attendance in Cincinnati was something like you would expect to see, well, in Pittsburgh. Or a team that's out of contention. Last place, you know what I mean? But it was plenty of seats still available at Great American Ballpark. For a team that, again, they're seven and three in their last ten, and squarely in playoff contention, I don't, I don't understand it. But uh, again, that series continues tonight between Cincy and Pittsburgh. A JT Brubaker will take the mound for the Pirates. So uh, going back to the football game last night, and uh, Steelers Cowboys take the field in Canton. Game, of course, was supposed to be last year. But the entire preseason, as we know, uh, wiped out by the pandemic. Always great to see football back, even though, you know, it's it's a meaningless preseason game with guys that we'll never hear from again probably, you know, in a month from now. But the great thing is that last night's game means there will now be some kind of football every single week through February. It's a glorious thing. It is time to rejoice. That's the great thing about the Hall of Fame game. It kicks off the entire football season. There will be some kind of football. High school, college, NFL preseason, then the regular. Some kind of football that we can sit down and watch on TV between now through February. All due respect uh, to the Christmas tune, this very well may be. The most wonderful time of the year. As for the game itself, eh, I mean, you know, it's what you expect for the preseason opener. Not a whole lot of starters on the field. 16 Cowboys, they didn't even make the trip. They didn't even bother. Steelers came out with a number of starters uh, in the first series, minus Ben Roethlisberger. Defensively, I think the Steelers had three starters out there. I think it was Sutton, Highsmith, and uh, one other. I watched a good portion of the first quarter just because, and then I was then I was done. I I just I flipped back and forth uh, the rest of the night, and every time I flipped back uh, to the football game, there was somebody new at quarterback. <laughs> there were six total quarterbacks last night, uh, three for each team. Again, it's preseason. What do you want? And I know people get. Way too excited. Way too excited about preseason football. You, you need to just pump the brakes a bit. and You need to just go on Twitter. Just go on Twitter and follow, you know, a Steelers timeline or a Cowboy. People just take it way too seriously. They go, oh, Mason Rudolph doesn't look great. Get him out of there. Oh, Dwayne Haskell. Oh, I see enough of Najee Harris. Blah, blah, blah. It's because it's first game of the season. It doesn't mean anything. So relax. 
I mean, Cowboy, Cowboys led 3 nothing at the half. That's all you need to know. That should give you uh, some kind of indication of what kind of game it was. It was sloppy. It was choppy. It's, you know, it's, it's preseason football. Uh, as I mentioned, Roethlisberger did not play. Uh, Mason Rudolph got to start. He completed 6 of 9 for 84 yards. Uh, his primary challenger for the backup role, Dwayne Haskins, former uh, Washington football teamer. He went 8 for 13, 54 yards. Neither of them really, you know, stood out. But again, it's preseason. Josh Dobbs uh, got some playing time. He threw a 5-yard TD pass to some guy named Tyler Simmons. I don't know. And for a team, I guess if you want to try to pull something out of last night's game, if you're a Steelers fan, for a team that has come out and said that they are dead set on reestablishing the run game this season because they were, I think it was the words of Troy Aikman last night, terrible last year in the run game. What He said it was either terrible or awful or horrible. It was pretty much on point, whatever he said. They ranked last in so many rushing categories last year or close to last. And we heard a clip from Sal Palantonio yesterday that everybody in the Steelers organization, from the top on down, said they are going to They're going to get back to running the football. And for a team that's dead set on doing that, they did not get off to a great start last night. They ran the ball a total of 30 times for just 76 yards. That's an average of 2.5 yards a carry, which, in case you don't know, is not very good. Overall, though, hey, good to have football back, and it's good to hear once again from Steelers head coach Mike Tomlin. Man, we were just honored to be here tonight and, and to play, um, particularly just all that was going on this weekend here in Canton, uh, the great Steelers being enshrined in the Hall of Fame. It was an honor for us to to play and to entertain them, and, and so I just wanted to start with that. Um, we're thankful to win. Um, I think anytime we step into a stadium, man, that's the objective. But larger than that, from a big picture standpoint, man, there was a lot to be learned from the things that happened. Uh, some positives, some things that we can build on, some things that were negative that we need to eliminate from our play in all three phases. Just in general, I, I like the enthusiasm and the energy in which the guys play with. I just think that's important. We're able to carry energy into the stadium. I tell you, um, I don't think I don't think any of us missed the fact that just having a stadium full of fans, what that does, the energy that that the stands and the fans provided us, man, uh, being without that largely for for over a year was good to be back in that type of a football environment. We were appreciative of that. Yeah, the stands were full last night. Now look, the the, the stadium there in Canton's not very big anyway, but it was good to see a full stadium. Most of them were you know decked out in black and gold, as you would expect. You know, when you have, especially when you have the Steelers, you know, A, playing in the game. And two, you got Donnie Shell, Troy Palomalu. Uh, who else? Is, is Cower getting inducted this year or is he already in? They showed Bill Cower a lot in the time I I can't remember if he's getting inducted or not. There's like 84 people getting inducted this weekend in the Hall of Fame because there was no induction ceremony last year. 
So like the 2020 class of 20, there's like 20 people going in from last year, including Donnie Shell. They're getting inducted tomorrow. And then the class of 2021 is getting inducted on Sunday. So it is a weekend full of inductions. I got to check on Cower. I know Bill Nunn, uh, the great scout uh, for the Steelers, is also getting inducted. So when you put all that together, there's just tons. Steelers fans just flood. It's like a two-hour drive from Pittsburgh to Canton, a little over two hours. So they were just all over the place. And it was good to see, despite how you may think about it, a full crowd there at the game last night. And like Tomlin said, it brought an energy that they missed all of last season. Yeah, I know, you know, some stadiums had, you know, four, maybe 5,000 people, whatever. It's, it's not the same. So, and like Thomas said, got to work on some things. Hey, look, preseason, as we talked about yesterday, is not for us. Preseason football is not for the fans. Preseason football is there for two reasons. Number one, is there for the team to evaluate, to make their, you know, their cuts, their rosters, whatever. And number two, it's there for degenerate gamblers. That's what preseason football is. That, that's the reason preseason football exists. For the teams, players, coaches, and for the gamblers. That's it. The only people that should be taking anything away from last night's game are the teams themselves and gamblers. That's it. As I mentioned, the Cowboys, uh, on the other side of things, they rolled out three quarterbacks with uh, Dak Prescott still back in Dallas. Some guy named Garrett Gilbert started. I honestly never heard of this guy before in my life. I Until last night, I did not know a guy named Garrett Gilbert existed. Apparently, he quarterbacked at SMU. He was like a 20 uh, draft pick in what, 20? Uh, I saw it. What is it now? Uh, 2014. So he's been in the league for seven years. Never heard of the guy until last night. He was then relieved by Ben DiNucci, uh, former Pitt slash uh, James Madison quarterback, and then Cooper Rush. They combined to throw for 238 yards. Overall, the Cowboys outgained the Steelers by a pretty hefty margin, 347 to 250. But their big downfall was turnovers and uh, red zone efficiency. Cowboys turned the ball over three times to uh, the Steelers' one. And uh, they were 0-for-2 in the red zone. Still, uh, head coach Mike McCarthy said it was a step in the uh, right direction. I mean, it's going very well. Um, you know, I, I think just our, our operation, you know, for the first time out, uh, felt good about it. There's, I mean, there's some things that we'll, you know, we'll clean up. and But the communication was good. Um, we, we have, you know, we, we got more to offer. So, But I thought, we, I thought we took the first step that we needed to take. Now, this weekend's going to be quiet. As far as on the field, like I said, it's going to be a bunch of Hall of Fame inductions and ceremonies uh, this weekend in Canton. Uh, then the preseason gets into full swing next week. Two games on Thursday, and uh, they involve teams we talk about here. Uh, one involving the Steelers, as they will take on the Eagles in Philly. The other, the Washington Fighting Riveras, uh, they will play the Pats in New England. So, uh Congratulations to all football fans out there. A football season is officially uh, underway. All right, uh, time for a break. News and weather coming up uh, when we come back. 
Uh, we'll stay with the NFL. We'll talk vaccinations in the NFL. In case you haven't been paying attention to people talking about vaccinations uh, a lot these days, particularly in sports. Stick around for that. 102.1 FM, AM 1230, WCMD. This is the Morning Rush. You know what I find funny? Well, I find a lot of things funny, actually. Have you ever been on uh, scrolling through the old book of faces and... Every once in a while, that thing will pop up and say, people you may know, right? Then you scroll through like 60 people, and you don't know a single damn one of them. <laughs> Not a one. Hey, here's a giant list of people you may know. And it turns out you don't know any of them. Because chances are they're friends of a friend of a friend who's not even really a friend. They're their friends, not yours. Seriously, I'm going through this list like, nope, nope, don't know him, don't know him, never heard of him, don't know him, don't know him, nope, oh, oh, might know that person, nope, don't know that person, nope, 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 nobody, nobody. Anyway, I heard on the uh, the news update there that uh, Governor Hogan, uh, coming off the top rope with the uh, vaccination thing for state employees, right, saying that you, you, you got to get you know, if you work in, uh, what was it, congregate settings or something like that, you have to get vaccinated or then you must follow a strict protocol. I'm telling you, man, it's a slippery slope. You're playing with a fire when you try to when you try to tell people that they have to, you know, put something in their bodies that they don't. When you tell people that they have to get a vaccine. Now, I've never... St- told people that, you know, you have to. I recommend it. I got mine. I've said it before. I recommend it. I think it's, you know, the smart thing to do, as far as I'm concerned. But whenever you start telling folks, when you start laying down these ultimatums with the vaccines, man, I'm telling you, I'm glad I don't have to deal with that kind of stuff. Uh, Speaking of vaccines, vaccinations, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's been a lot of talk. (laughs) about vaccinations lately. A small topic of conversation uh, around the water cooler and on TV. You may have picked up on it. Sports, of course, uh, they have not been impervious to the discussion as teams from really all the leagues try to get their players and their their coaches vaccinated. And, uh, of course, this came out last week, the Vikings, Minnesota Vikings, as opposed to whatever Vikings. I don't even know why I said Minnesota. The the Petersburg Vikings. Uh, No, the Vikings quarterback room was recently hit by COVID. Kirk Cousins and uh, Nate Stanley were both a subject to protocols as of last Saturday after rookie uh, Kellen Mond uh, tested positive. And both Cousins and Stanley returned to practice yesterday. Cousins uh, is not vaccinated. And doesn't plan on getting vaccinated anytime soon. He said he's had six negative COVID tests since coming in contact with uh, Kellen Mond on July 30th. And, of course, they were put in the quarantine or whatever because of the the whole close contact thing. And they they actually blamed the close contact thing on the size, the literal size of the quarterback room. That the quarterback's room is so small that you have no choice but to be in close contact with somebody. 
So they plan on having their quarterback meetings in a, a bigger setting. But anyway, yesterday before practice, uh, Cousins said he plans to be vigilant when it comes to following protocols uh, for this upcoming season. I think the vaccination decision is a private, very private health matter for me, and I'm going to keep it as such. Um, uh, I do believe that as a leader of the team, it's very important uh, to follow the protocols to avoid this close contact because that is that is what it's going to come down to is did you have a close contact, and so I'm going to be vigilant about avoiding a close contact. Well, the protocols are what you have to follow. The NFL has set these protocols in place. So uh, I want to follow the protocol so I can play on Sunday, and that's where my focus is. So as long as I can, um, you know, not test positive and not have a close contact, I'll be there for every every game. I mean, look, it's a good thought. It really is. But good luck with that. Good luck with trying to avoid close contact. Playing football. (laughs) You have no idea from one day to the next who may have the COVID, right? A virus that, in a lot of cases, doesn't even show any symptoms. It's impossible to avoid close contact in football from the locker room to the team meetings to road trips to being on the field together it's simply not reasonable to think that you can avoid close contact while playing team sports so why I I get and I understand Cousins coming out and saying he's going to be vigilant and he's going to wear a mask and he's going to keep the whole distance thing and because he wants to play, I mean, again, it's it's a a, a a wonderful thought. But come on, you see, you're just you're not going to avoid the close contact. You can't. They've already proven it once, and the NFL has already made it clear that games will not be postponed this season. So if a team is hit hard by COVID and can't play, they're going to forfeit. And that was really the NFL's kind of backhanded way of telling players, if you want to play, you need to get vaccinated. Can't really come out and force them to, right? They can't really put a mandate out, but they can say, and let's be honest, whether you agree with vaccinations or not, the best way the best way to, to play a game is to make sure all your players are vaccinated. The best way to avoid a forfeit is for all of them, everybody to be vaccinated. But the NFL just can't, you know, they can't mandate it. And as I mentioned earlier in the first segment, uh, a team that Cousins used to play for, Washington, uh, they are gearing up for their preseason opener on Thursday in New England. And uh, wide receiver Terry McLaurin uh, was on Spain and Fitz yesterday, and he talked about how his team has handled the uh, vaccination uh, situation. I think we've done a good job starting with, you know, Coach Rivera. He respects everybody's decision. Obviously, they've done a good job of bringing in certain experts to try to help educate guys. And for the guys that are vaccinated, we got to, you know, continue to try to help those guys get as much information they need if that's what they need. But at the same time, I think we all respect each other's decisions. We know the importance of it, but nobody wants to be the guy 
that kind of, you know, gets in the way of what we're trying to build. And I think we have a good locker room in that. I think that shows with, you know, I think guys are getting better. Obviously, our numbers are trimming in the right direction. We just got to continue to stay accountable to ourselves and then to each other to try to keep everybody safe. Yeah, so apparently Ron Rivera made a plea uh, to his team uh, last weekend to get vaccinated. And it worked to an extent. Uh, the team upped its vaccination rate to 84% of players that have at least one shot, which is up. Now, the Red, or I'm sorry, ooh, almost did it. Almost. Uh, the Washington Fighting Riveras didn't officially release their numbers, but according to a team source, uh, they're at 70% vaccination as of last Saturday. That was 31st in the league, 19 percentage points below the league average. And even though after Rivera's plea, it's up to 84%, that still only ranks 29th in the league. Now, those numbers were from about three days ago, so they may have gone up since then. But again, with the NFL pretty much you know cracking down and saying that we're not going to move your games around this year, if you get hit by COVID, you're going to forfeit. Best way to avoid that is get vaccinated. So you got Rivera, you got probably other coaches, I'm sure, other teams pleading their case with their players, get the shots. But it's hard. It's hard to force somebody to do something they don't want to. It really is. Now, as far as on-the-field discussions go, McLaurin was asked yesterday on Spain and Fitz uh, about what it's like to work with a guy like Orion Fitzpatrick in the offseason. Fitz has been great. Um, you know, he's a veteran in this league and has been in a lot of different systems and played with a lot of great players. So, you know, for a young group of guys, he really helps us out a lot. He knows how to get us into the right plays, and um, he makes the job easier for all of us. And, you know, he likes to have a good time and when it's time to have a good time, but he knows how to lock in when that's necessary too, which gives him a balance from the quarterback position. That's really cool to see. And then, you know, as a receiver, you obviously love that he's going to give you the ability to to, uh, make plays down the field. So there you go. Uh, I I do believe, I think Fitzpatrick is going to do good things for the fighting Rivera's this season. I think Washington's going to be good this year. Maybe not Super Bowl winning good, but I think they're going to be good enough with that defense, with a little Fitz magic. I think they can push for the NFC East title. I know it's August 6th, so you take that for what it's worth. We'll see. Again, uh, preseason opener Thursday against New England. All right, uh, one break, and then back to wrap things up for hour number one. Stick around, WCMD. This is the Morning Rush. Uh, Coming up next hour, my main man, Joe Shuda, will have our Rush Friday feature. First one in a long time, because I haven't been here the last three Fridays. In the spirit of the uh, summer games in Tokyo, uh, today's feature, Joe catches up with 1972 gold medal winner Dave Waddle. He won the gold in the 800 meters. Uh, The greatest comeback in track and field history. So you don't want to miss that. Uh, Tonight, as soon as I pull up the schedule here, because I am ill-prepared, Nationals baseball, the Nats try to snap, what is it now, four in a row? They've lost, they were swept, they were swept in the four-game series uh, against the Phillies. So it's at least a four-game losing streak. They try to snap that streak uh, tonight. Uh, we'll have the game right here, pregame 650. I don't even know who they're playing. 
<laughs> I told you, ill-prepared. Oh, that's right, the Braves. They got the Braves. They're in Atlanta. And it is indeed a four-game losing streak. Nats have lost four in a row. Uh, they've lost uh, six of their last eight. And wow, really? Is that bad? Six of their last eight and 11 of their last uh, 13. Is that right? Or 14? Wow. Definitely. Uh, and it all started when they got swept by the Orioles. That's when the decline started. And then, of course, uh, they traded half the team away. And now they're pretty much, barring some kind of baseball miracle, I think they're pretty much done. I think the Nationals are out of uh, contention with the way the roster is made up. But they can still be a thorn in somebody's side uh, starting tonight uh, with that series in Atlanta. As I mentioned earlier, uh, the NL East getting uh, tight up top with the Mets, the Phillies, and the Braves all separated by a game and a half. And the Mets and the Phillies play this weekend. So really the top four teams in the East playing each other this weekend. So, I mean, it could stand to reason. I, I, I can't crunch the numbers that quick. But if the Mets and Phillies beat up on each other, could the Braves possibly be in first place? Could they gain a game and a half? I, I don't know if that's possible. But anyway, uh, the Nats are seven and a half back. I mean, come on. They're, they're 11 games under five hundred. I, I, I say I say you stick a fork in them. Now, there's still, you know, there's a wild card to talk about, I guess, if you want to get into it. They are, yeah, see, they're 12 and a half out of the top wild card spot. Or, I'm sorry, the second wild card spot. Cubs are 10 back, Cardinals are 8 back, and then you got the Braves, Phils, and the Reds. Ah, you know. You still got two months of the season left, but for all intents and purposes, the national season is over. But still listen to them. Still, <laughs> how's that for a sell job? Still tune in to listen because you never know. Anyway, they got the Braves tonight. Again, pregame at a 650. I'm just trying to kill time until the top of the hour. Because what I was doing during the break was I was uh, posting on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, again, at uh, WCMD Morning Rush on Twitter. Uh, at WCMD Cumberland Radio on Facebook, I was posting a picture of uh, Dave Waddle and promoting the fact that his interview is coming up next hour. So while I was doing that, I was not preparing uh, to kill the final five minutes of this hour. That's what happens when you have to do everything yourself. I'm just I'm just throwing it out there. That's what happens when you don't have somebody else uh, to help do that stuff. When you have to do everything yourself, some things have to suffer. Mainly uh, me. I I suffer. Oh, that's not true. Uh, Maybe a little. Also, uh, next hour, uh, aside from the Waddle interview, uh, we're going to talk about more of the SEC, Big 12, Pac-12 thing. Because people are still talking about it. Oklahoma, Texas. Moving to the SEC, uh, you know, good for college sports, bad for college sports. A former Oklahoma star chimes in, and we hear we'll hear from a, a Pac-12 AD on get his thoughts on a possible a rumored Big Twelve Pac-12 merger. 
with OU and Texas jumping ship, the Big 12 is going to need help. And them merging with the Pac-12 would be a very good move for the Big 12. The question is, does the Pac-12 need to do it? Pac-12, they still have their 12 teams. They're still in decent shape. So do they really need to bring on, do they really need to throw the Big 12 a life preserver, a life raft, or whatever you want to call it, the donut, the life donut? (laughs) Anyway, we'll talk about that and much more in the next hour. And again, the interview with uh, gold medal winner uh, Dave Waddle, all that coming up. Stick around. 102.1 FM, AM 1230, WCMD. This is the Morning Rush. Hit me up on Twitter at WCMD Morning Rush. Uh, my page at Rush Tony C. That's the letter C, not the word. On Facebook at WCMD Cumberland Radio. Rush line is open. You want to give me a call? It's highly encouraged. 301 759 2628. Your chance to dial and dance. Shamo. 301 759. 2628, and of course, our podcast page on the free Podbean app. Just get that app on your phone or tablet or other such device, and we upload every show every day, minus commercials, on the podcast page. You can go back and check out anything you miss. For instance, if you missed the first hour, talk some baseball, we talk some football, a lot of football, we talk vaccinations in football. And we talked about uh, the tight race in the NL East, the struggling Nationals, all that kind of stuff uh, in the first hour. And we also talked about uh, the friends you may know on Facebook uh, that you simply don't know at all. <laughs> you, stroll, you, you scroll through 60 people, you don't, don't know any of them. How is that still off? How is it? Here we go. Woo! Go! enough of that. That's enough of that. I didn't realize the song was still on. I had no idea. They're supposed to be cut short. Apparently, we put the whole thing on there. So there you go. (laughs) Uh, You can tell it's Friday. All right. Um, Before we get to our Rush Friday feature, uh, Joe Shuda interviewing uh, gold medal winner uh, Dave Waddle. Let's uh, one more time rock around the region. I want to rock right now. And we start in the NFL where the Steelers and Cowboys kicked off the preseason in Canton last night with the annual Hall of Fame game. Turn and the give. A little stutter step down to the goal line and into the end zone for that Steelers touchdown is Kalen Bellage. And I tell you what, I don't like to dig up past names but there was a little echo of Le'Veon Bell in that little stutter step. <laughs> Bill Hillgrove, the call on the Steelers radio network, 16-3. to The final, Pittsburgh gets the win. Uh, that's the good news. The bad news, no team has ever won the Hall of Fame game and the Super Bowl uh, in the same season. So you just take off whatever it's worth. Uh, Najee Harris, uh, seven carries, 22 yards in his uh, Steelers debut. Chase Claypool led Pittsburgh with three catches, of 462 yards. In Major League Baseball, the Nationals 
for trying to avoid a four-game sweep at the hands of the Phillies in D.C. The Nats led 5-3 in the ninth with Kyle Finnegan on the mound trying to close things out. He did not. The 1-1, swing and a drive, left center field. It's well hit. Yadiel Hernandez won't get it. It's going to the wall. One run will score. Harper flying around third. He will score, and Reese Hoskins has come through. A two-run double. The call on WIP, uh, a pair of two-run doubles by Reese Hoskins is his real name, and JT Realmuto. Uh, rallied the Phillies past the Nats 7-6 to get that four-game sweep. Uh, Finnegan got touched up for all four runs on three hits and a walk. Bryce Harper homered in the second inning uh, for Philly, his sixth homer of the season against the Nationals. He now has 250 dingers for his career. Josh Bell hit a three-run homer for Washington. Elsewhere, the Reds and Pirates opened a four-game series in Cincinnati, and the Reds wasted no time getting out front. And Votto swings and hammers one. Deep right center field. Way back there. Goodbye into the first row of seats just above the 370 sign. Votto's 22nd home run of the year. The call on 700 WLW, a pair of three-run homers for Joey Votto and Ejuenio Suarez in a six-run second inning. And since he went on to beat the Bucks 7-4, only two of those six runs were earned thanks to an error by second baseman Wilmer Defoe. Uh, Hoy Park and Kevin Newman each had two hits for the Pirates, who've lost four of five. Uh, the Reds, by the way, have won seven of nine. And the Orioles were off yesterday, which means they at least couldn't lose. Uh, they will open a weekend series at home tonight against the AL East leading Rays. John Means will get the starts for the O's. Ryan Yarbrough takes the mound for Tampa. And that is your Rock Around the Region brought to you by the Cap Rally Group. Put that there in uh, file 13, and we move on. Time now for a Rush Friday feature. It is back because I haven't been here for the last three Fridays. My main man, Joe Shuda. Get all his stuff on his website, 2MinuteTO.com. That's the number 2MinuteTO.com. Today, in the spirit of the summer games in Tokyo, Joe catches up with 1972 gold medal winner Dave Waddle, and they'll talk about Waddle's victory in the 800 meters, the greatest comeback in the history of track and field. Here is today's Rush Friday feature uh, with Joe Shuda. My guest on the Rush Friday feature was an outstanding collegiate runner at Bowling Green State University. He was a gold medal winner in the 800-meter finals during the 1972 Olympics. To honor those accomplishments, he was inducted into the National Track and Field Hall of Fame. Only because of the magic of technology was I able to run down Dave Waddle. Dave, thanks for taking the time to talk about life and running. Hey, Joe. It's great to be with you again. Well, let's go back and talk about how you began running. And looking back initially, did you believe you had above-average ability? Well, I think I found out fairly quickly, but I was really searching. And I always tell when I talk to young athletes, you know, you have to try as many sports as you can or as many activities as you can because you never know what you're going to be good at. And, you know, when you're 13, 14, 15, you're trying to find something that you can excel in or at least be halfway decent in. So I tell people to try as many things as you can. That's what I did. I was in football, basketball, baseball, and I thought I'd give track a try. And when I first signed up for track, 
I thought I was pretty fast. I had run a race with a kid in my neighborhood that uh, his nickname was Bunny, and I thought Bunny was the fastest kid in the world. And I jump-started him one time, and I beat him in a sprint, so I thought I was a sprinter. But it didn't take me long to line up with the sprinters to pound out that I wasn't a sprinter. I always tell people my high school coach came and put his arm around me, and he said, Dave, I'm going to send you where I send everybody else that doesn't have any talent, distance runners. How many of us became distance runners because we couldn't excel in much anything else? But that's what what I did. And then in in my first few races as a freshman at Kent Lincoln High School, I ended up in a time trial beating uh, around a park. It wasn't even around a track, but there was a park across the street. We ran around the park, and I beat the kid who was the best on the team in the half mile. So I kind of found out fairly quickly that I thought I at least had a talent in running. I wasn't real good, but at least I had a talent that I could build on. The shoes back then, of course, were completely different. Today you see shoes $150, $200. It's incredible. <laughs> but what about the shoes you were running in then? What do you think I was running in? Do you have any idea? 1968 in high school uh, I was or 1964? Converse basketball shoes, something like that? Exactly. I was running in Converse All-Stars. Uh, those were, and they had, of course, no padding whatsoever. You were just basically running flat-footed. There was no flare in the heel. Even by the time I got to college, when I was running at BG, the best running shoe out there was the Adidas Gazelle. And if you look at the Gazelle, they still make them. There's no flare heel to them. There's very little padding. You know, I was injured quite a bit. I got stress fractures in both of my fibulas. I had tendonitis in one knee, bursitis in the other. And I got to look back at it and think a lot of that was just running on a lot of asphalt and doing a lot of the road work and having shoes that were just really subpar. When I look back to my era with Jim Ryan, Marty LaCorey, Steve Prefontaine, Frank Shorter, we had a, a core of really international runners, but we didn't have near as much as what they got now, you know, as far as uh, the training was different, the equipment was different, the track surfaces were different. I think we did fairly well with what we had to work with. We are speaking with Dave Waddle on the Rush Friday feature. Dave, your decision to attend Bowling Green, did you have some other offers? Was that a difficult decision? Well, I was looking mainly local, and, and it was a difficult decision. I was really signed, sealed, and delivered at Mount Union College. It was a small liberal arts school in Alliance, Ohio. I had a room, a roommate. I had a course schedule. Uh, I had checked out the room. I'd gone over and checked it out, so I was all ready to go to Mountain Union. And I got cold feet about two weeks before the beginning of school. I thought, you know, the the mile record at Mountain Union was at the time 417 in the mile. I had run 420 as a senior in high school. And I thought, you know, I may end up getting that school record the first year I'm there. And what will push me and uh, make me become better if, if, you know, if I'm the by far the best miler at, at that college. So I switched over to Bowling Green. Bowling Green at the time had a had an All-American in Sid Sink. Uh, he was uh, All-American as a freshman in the steeplechase. He ended up being the American record holder in the steeplechase at 826.4. So, and he was a pusher and he was a leader. And I really got wrapped up. And I was not a, a leader in, in college. I, I followed Sid Sink. And he was a great leader and a very... Uh, good competitor in the mile all the way up to the 10,000 cross country. He was a nine-time All-American track and cross country. So it was a perfect decision for me as a follower to get into a school that had a very strong leader in running. 
The transition from high school to college, what were some of the common pitfalls that even kids today go through athletically and academically? Well, I think the biggest thing in college, at least for me, was the mileage and the training regimen. My high school did not have, Camp Lincoln did not have cross-country or indoor track. We simply had a about a two-month track season. We started in 1st of April, and our state meet back then was in the end of May. So it was really two months, and you did a little bit of preparation before. But I got to Bowling Green. I didn't even know I was supposed to run cross-country. I thought I was getting a track scholarship. I'd never really run cross country, but uh, they had me run cross country. And of course, I jumped in and uh, I went from having to run 20 to 25 miles a week in high school to where I was running 70, 80 miles a week in college my first year. That was a huge, huge adjustment for me and also running all year long. I was training in the summer for cross country and then you got cross country, indoor, outdoor. And then on top of that, as you said, you have the academics and, you know, I, I Kent Lincoln was, a, I'm sure, a fine school, but I wasn't that great of a student. And, you know, you get in there where they're teaching you one course each quarter for the, your years condensed down to a quarter. And it was, it was, a, it was a struggle and uh, it was an adjustment to make. But it's not like other students haven't done it. All the kids on the, on the cross country track team had to make the same kind of tough adjustment from high school to college. So you just did it. The road to the Olympics, amateur athletes, things are so completely different now than they were then. And you look at that goal to be in the Olympics, but also what was the driving force to want to represent the United States? Well, Joe, I was blessed, really. I was I was blessed with the timing because uh, when 72 rolled around, it was perfect for me because I was a I was a redshirt junior. I had been injured all of my 1971 season, so they redshirted me. So I had until 73 to complete my, my track uh, high school, college. So I was in college. So even though there, there wasn't much money to make, I was on an athletic scholarship and I was running. So it was just perfect that I would be running for college, but also have the Olympic trials and the Olympics come along right at the time when I was peaking. In my uh, you know fourth year of college, it was my third year academically, fourth year via the calendar. So, uh, so it was just good timing. The motivation was simply you know I was just trying to. I was really back then. My goal was to to do well in the NCAA meet, uh, the championship, and then you know if I did well in the NCAA, then I'd set my sight towards the trials and then towards the Olympics. I was going little by little. I wasn't one that started my junior year. In 72, I was coming off an injury all of 71. So in my build-up to the 1972, I was just trying to get back into running a year of constant injuries. And so the Olympics were the farthest thing from me. I was just trying to do well in the NCAA. But you did have some conflicts with the coaches, your decision to get married before the Olympics. I understand that they weren't happy with the fact that you wore the golf cap. It wasn't part of the uniform. And athletes were sort of at the mercy back then of their coaches. And what about your relationship with your Olympic coaches? And you also had your college coach and you were relying on also. Yeah, and, and my college coach was a great coach, Mel Brote, and, and he really is the person that got me in a position to do well. But yeah, I had qualified in the 1500. And after the 1500, Bill Bowerman, the coach of Oregon and Steve Prefontaine, was the head Olympic coach in 72 for track and field. And he kind of was old school. And he pulled me aside and said, you know, hey, Dave, I think you should postpone your wedding, you know, and really focus on the Olympics. And as a coach, 
myself, I could see why he would say that and say, yeah, you know, really, it's such an important meet and such an important part of your life. Why don't you just put it on pause, your marriage and, and focus? But I was scheduled to get married six days later, <laughs> and there was no way that I was going to tell my fiance, current wife, uh, Jan, that, you know, hey, we're six days out. All the guests are planning on coming. Everything's planned that, hey, let's put a wait on that for two months until the Olympics. So it was kind of a done deal on mine. And he wasn't pleased with it. But to me, I wasn't backed into a corner. It's just I wouldn't have done that to my fiance. You felt you were strongest on the mile, but you wind up obviously making history in one of the greatest races ever on the 800 meters. How did that happen? Well, you know, Joe, it's, a, it's an interesting story because two weeks before the Olympic trials, I had not met the standard in the half mile to even run in the Olympic trials. So my coach told me, I'm going to send you out to Seattle just by yourself. The AAU Nationals is, it was two weeks before the Olympic trials. He says, I'm going to have you run the 800 meters, see how you do, see if you can get the qualifier for the Olympic trials. And then in the trials, we'll have you run the 800. It'll almost be like a workout. You're going to be doing speed workouts at that time anyway, because it's, uh, you know, you have the, the three races in the 800, and then you have about a three-day wait, and then you go three races in the 1500. So it was just perfect. He says, and then, you know, you get eliminated. We'll just continue to do the workout and do a speed work. So there was no anticipation that I would do really that well. So in the AAU meet, I ended up winning the AAU. I ran 147.3 and that met the qualifier for the Olympic trials. So great. I'll run the 800 and got in the 800 and ended up tying the world record, which was a total surprise to me. It improved my best time by three seconds just in that one race. And I remember telling the press, you know, how much I I had no idea what I was doing out there in the 800 because really I, I ran a lot of 800s in my career because coach had always put me in the meets and run the mile, the 800 and the four by four. That's kind of typical for a distance runner, middle distance runner. So I knew the 800, but I, I really wasn't a great tactician in the 800 because I looked at the mile as my best race. But once I tied the world record, my focus then had to had to be more on the 800 than the 15. Well, we go to that race, which you've probably gone through a million times talking about. Let's go back to the beginning of the race. How do you feel? Got to be nervous, obviously. And then you start out and I've watched the video many, many times and you're dead last after 500 meters. I get excited watching what happens. Explain <laughs> to us your feeling throughout that and what you're processing in your mind during that time. Well, I was very, very nervous and very underconfident. When I stepped on the track, I believed I could win the race. I think every runner has to go in believing they're going to do their best. And, you know, in my case, I, I thought I could win. But in the back of my mind, there was that feeling that I'd lost so much training. I got injured at the Olympic training camp in Bowdoin College, and my mileage was just reduced. I wanted to be running 70 to 80 miles a week prior to the Olympics, and, and I was cut down to about 20 to 30 miles a week. So in the back of my mind, I kept thinking, you know, you're not in the condition you were in in the Olympic trials to run a real fast race. And then in that Olympic race, the finals, the runners went out very quickly. They went out in 24 point something and 0.8 or something. But back then, you know, that's a 49 pace. You did go out that fast normally in an 800. Luckily, and, and I just fell behind because I, I wasn't in addition to keep up with that pace. And luckily at the second 200 meters, they fell back to me. And I kind of just maintained the same pace I started out with, basically, and uh, was able to catch up to the back of the pack by the end of the first lap. 
As you come down to the final 100 meters or so, what are you thinking? Okay, I'm going to win the bronze possibly. Well, maybe the silver. What are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, a lot of runners that have gone through that, your mind's acting like a little computer as you're coming down that home stretch. You're kind of judging where you are with the leader and how quickly you're gaining on him. If you are gaining on him, how quickly you're gaining on him, how much distance you got. So, you know, you're making that equation of how quickly am I gaining on him? How far do I have the finish line? Can I get there first? And so I was making that equation at the top of the stretch, and I just wasn't gaining on Arjunov that much. And I thought, I'm just going to go after the bronze medal. I'm going to go after Robert Uku, who was in third, just try to pass the first Kenyan. And that's all I was trying to do when I hit the home stretch. I wasn't looking at the finish line at that point, but when I caught Uku about halfway down the home stretch, like any good manager, you quickly reevaluate your goals and you go, hey, I'm, I'm going to go after the silver medal. So I was just trying to get Boyd, but Boyd was very close to Arjunov. Basically, I was trying to get Boyd and ended up uh, getting to the finish line. You know, it happened so quick then at that point, you're just trying to get to the finish line with that final lean and surge at the tape. The Lord enabled me to, to win by a breath. It was only three hundredths of a second. It was the closest Olympic 800-meter race ever at that time. Tell me this. I heard this one time, and I don't know, you may have told me or someone else that when you come down to the final stretch, it's not that the person who winds up winning is running faster, but they're not running as slowly as the other guys are slowing down. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. Well, it was in my case. My last 200 meters was almost exactly the same as my first 200 meters, and my two middle 200 meters were the same. So my splits were all even. My quarter splits were even. And what was happening is they went out very quickly, 24 point something. Back then that was fast. And at the end, Arjunov was coming back to me. And uh, I was simply maintaining the race now. You know, you usually don't go into an Olympic race and go, yeah, you know, I'm going to give these guys 10 yards and I'm going to reel them in at the end. <laughs> it's not a great strategy in Olympic finals. But it ended up working to my advantage that I went out slower and just maintained an even pace uh, through the race. But I also tell people, I try to be honest and say, you know, if I would have run that race in the condition I was, I'd probably be lucky to win two out of ten. Only because if they would have run a fast race, if they were just going out in a barn burger race, I wasn't in the shape that I was in the Olympic trials where I could, I could run with them. You know, because I, I went into the race having the fastest time in the world. But I, I wasn't in that condition to do that again in the Olympic Stadium. Incredible. Three-tenths of a second changed your life. Do you think about that every day? Does that come up in your, in your memory every day? Oh, yeah. You know, I tell people, and I don't know if it's exactly true that a day hasn't gone by where I don't think about it in some way. Usually it's a flash of something. You know, if you're doing something and it's kind of difficult, the flash comes up with, yeah, but, you know, you're the best in the world at something. There's some value to being able to say that to yourself, that you can do it. You know, you did it before, you can do it now. Or a comment will come up or your name will be recognized or something will happen that kind of flashes you back. And it's really a very, very strong memory. Now, I don't remember a lot of the stuff I was thinking in the race or seeing in the race. I see the race more from the camera's eye now as my memory has gotten a little bit worse as to what I was thinking. But still, that memory of that race is still very strong for me. And, and I get flashbacks to it all the time. Now, once again, we know the Internet doesn't lie, but I had read that you used to keep your gold medal in your car. Is that true that you, you kept it in your car? But it's, I'm sure it's safely away in a safe deposit box, right? 
It is, but yeah, that's not true about the car. I never, I never left it in a car. I'm not, even though I'm not that foolish, but I used to keep it in my underwear drawer. I figured no one's going to go through my underwear drawer <laughs> to find anything. Uh, and then I, I finally got smart and I would hide it in the house and, and now it's in the safety deposit box. The tough thing about having a single gold medal is I have three kids and all of them were runners. And who do you give it to when you pass away? <laughs> they all want it. And you only got one. That's been the toughest thing in my trust or my will to decide how I'm going to get rid of that gold medal because they want to keep it in the family. But we'll just have them share it. No, I think it's very simple. You have them run the 800. <laughs> right. Well, my daughter may win that. So she was, I think, the best runner of the three. You know, I'm sure the guys would be right in her heels. Some final moments with Dave Waddle. Dave, after you finished college, you did some coaching, you ran professionally, and then what happened after that? I had to make a decision in the late 70s as to whether or not I'd, I'd continue in coaching or if I'd go into college administration. And I made the, the decision that I, I felt that it was best for me and my family that I, I stay in college admission. So I started a career in college admissions and financial aid. And I was at three institutions actually uh, in admissions. And then I just ended my career at uh, Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee in 2012. And I, I retired at that time. I did a couple of interim vice presidencies at colleges and admissions. Basically, I've been retired from the admissions and financial aid profession for the last uh, six years. Did you run any races later on years after in the Olympics or have you kept up with that some way? Do you jog or whatever? No, I, I really, I stopped, Joe. I, I, I kind of ran pro track from 73 to 75, and then I went cold turkey. I was running in a professional track meet on a, on a Friday night in Seattle, and I quit running on the following Saturday. Everybody will tell you that's the worst thing you can do. You get an enlarged heart when you're a distance runner. Just to stop all of a sudden is not the best, but I did. I I decided to, you know, I just felt like I was losing a little of the edge that I wanted to have. I wanted to stop while I had some confidence in my abilities uh, rather than just keep hanging on. I didn't have the uh, wherewithal to train the way I needed to train in pro track. You know, I had to jump a fence to get on a track to train on, and, and uh, I didn't have anybody to train with. And that's hard for any distance runner to keep at a high level if you're just training on by yourself. At least I found it very difficult to do. So I just decided to, to stop and I kind of run off and on a little bit. You know, I'll go out and jog three miles now and, and uh, huff and puff. And But no, I haven't continued on a consistent basis running over the years. When you finish up that jog, you don't put your hands up like the finish line, do you? <laughs> no, my hands are on my hips. I'm usually bent over, you know, just sucking in the air. Finally, Dave, what's the future for you? Well, I'm, I'm retired. I'm enjoying uh, golfing, jogging a little bit. We travel a lot. We've got eight grandkids. We spend a lot of time. They're scattered. Colorado Springs, Dallas, and Charlotte. So we spend a lot of time traveling to be with our kids and our grandkids and going on trips with them. And I'm still a little involved in track. We're putting together right now on August 15th, we're going to have a, a race called the, uh, the Ed Murphy Classic here in Memphis. And uh, we have Clayton Murphy, who won the Olympic trials. He's going to come in and try for the American record at the 1,000-yard dash. The person who holds that American record, it's the longest American record out there now, is Rick Woolhutter. He said it 48 years ago. ESPN2 is going to televise it, and they're going to get a group of athletes. I think they've got five really good athletes coming in. 
with some rabbits and try to break that American record that Rick has. Thanks for joining us once again on the Rush Friday feature. We'll talk to you down the road. Appreciate it very much. Best of luck to you. Thanks, Joe. Nice talking with you again. This is the Morning Rush. We have a meeting uh, later this morning. We got a meeting Monday and another meeting uh, today. It's two meetings in one week. It makes me just want to jump out of the window. Put it in an email, right? And get it over with. Ah, college sports. You know, people still talking about Oklahoma and uh, Texas's move to the SEC, which will happen by 2025. It'll uh, certainly be before that. Everybody seems to have an opinion on it. We've talked about it uh, more than once. You know, is it good for college sports? Bad for college sports? Uh, how what you know how it'll affect other teams and other conferences? The landscape of college sports will certainly be changing yet again. Former Oklahoma star, remember this guy Tony Casillas, uh, played for the Cowboys. Did he not for a stretch in the NFL? Uh, He gave his thoughts on ESPN about Texas and his alma mater uh, moving on uh, to the SEC. The SEC, it's all about the branding. It's all about how you're going to benefit and making money ultimately. That's the the key component. Is it right? Um, No. I mean, is it it, uh, fair to the other teams that are in the Big 12 that are going to be outside looking in? They'll find places to go in other conferences, but... I think it's something they had to do. I think really whenever this whole thing with players now getting paid for the likenesses and being able to capitalize on that, and you have someone like Nick Saban, uh, you know, spouting out this, this number of its quarterback making a million dollars, I think that really they realize that, look, that's where we need to be. And I think Texas, they can stand on their own feet because they have deep pockets. Oklahoma, maybe not, but it's a package deal, and – I think that's what people gravitate. They want to watch matchups. Is it fair to the rest of the Big 12 teams? Uh, no. Does Oklahoma and Texas care? Uh, no. They don't give a rip about the Oklahoma State's, West Virginia's, Kansas State's, TCU's of the world. Oklahoma and Texas are going to do what's best for Oklahoma and Texas. That's it. And what's best for them is to make as much money as they possibly can. And, of course, after the news of OU and Texas jumping ship to the SEC, uh, speculation, rumors began about a possible merger between the Big 12 and the Pac-12. And I've said it, and I believe it. The Big 12 will have a hard time standing on its own without its two biggest names moving on, right, to probably lose to Alabama every year. Now, merging with the Pac-12 would seem like a good thing for the Big 12. But what about the Pac-12? <laughs> I mean, they they seem to be on solid ground. They still have their 12 teams. They certainly don't want to make a move like that if it doesn't benefit them in the long run. Now, Washington State uh, Athletic Director Pat Chun was on uh, Freddie and Fitzsimmons last night. And he said there's absolutely no reason for the Pac-12 
to make any uh, sudden moves. You know, and us as a league, I mean, our presidents, chancellors, commissioners, ADs, coaches, everybody involved, you know, we want to make sure that we're making um, the right long-term decisions for the conference, what that looks like. You know, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll have, you know, we'll make those, you know, we'll have a strategy, but, um, you know, there's no reason to panic in the Pac-12. There's no reason to rush. I mean, everyone talks about what happened with Texas and Oklahoma, but, you know, depending on what you read, I mean, those talks were either at least six months old or, you know, up to a year and a half old. So, I mean, these things don't happen just overnight. Um, you know, they're all part of a bigger puzzle and, and, and we just got to make sure that, our, our, that, that we're just aimed in the right direction as we go forward. Now, uh, Freddie Fitzsimmons asked A.D. Chun if uh, all this moving and shaking, all the conference realignment, which we just went through 10 years ago, uh, if this stuff will uh, ever end. Uh, if, if anyone had gave you an answer for that, I think they're just uh, guessing. I, I don't know. I mean, there, there are some significant markers relative to television contracts. Obviously, once everyone at once, once leagues settle basically their TV deals, um, and then obviously the CFT expansion is still out there. I think those are the key markers. Once all those contracts are set, that's at least in, in the, whatever, whatever is defined as the length of those contracts or whatever the grant of rights is amongst those conferences, that'll dictate, you know, whatever, whatever a pause is. But I'm one who thinks right now we're in kind of a pause. I think one, there's a little bit of shock of what happened. Uh, with Oklahoma and Texas, but two, I think all the leagues are smart enough to know there, there's no reason for our league or, you know, the, in my opinion, the Big Ten or the ACC to hit the panic button. Mm-hmm. Just all three leagues need to figure out what's best for their respective leagues, what's best for college athletics as a whole, and, you know, can we work together to try to get there? Right. And ultimately, uh, AD Chun said that, you know, look, the college sports landscape is changing yet again, it's constantly changing. And you better be willing to change along with it or else you're going to be left behind. We're going through some unprecedented changes here in college athletics. I know even, um, you know, Mark Emmert at the NCAA talked about changes in the governance model as well. So uh, there are, we are we are in, in new territory uh, in college athletics. We, as an industry, need to come out of this stronger and better. Um, you know, where we ended with NIL, not really having, uh, not, not, I'm on D1 Council, not being able to pass anything other than a temporary, uh, ruling, uh, is not a, is not a great place to be as an industry. So, uh, we got a lot of work to do. We got to, you know, there's, there's a lot of moving pieces right now, but, um, you know, change is, is always inevitable and we got to figure out to make sure that how we're positioned best at Washington State and and and, Pac-12 and the Pac-12 conferences, things continue to evolve in college athletics. Yeah, you know, change is inevitable, but, man, we just changed this 10 years ago. It was just 10 years ago when, when you couldn't – you didn't know what team played in what conference, right? It took forever to figure out, especially in the lower uh, – what do they call them now, the group of five conferences, who played where, or what even the conferences were called for that matter. And here we are 10 years later just because Oklahoma and Texas want to make a move. We're going to go through this all over again. And, you know, Mike and I talked about this earlier in the week. If the Big 12 and the Pac-12 do somehow merge, that'll give them 20 teams. There's no way a conference can have 20 teams. So some teams are going to have to be left out. And, and, and chances are one of them will be West Virginia, which they probably won't mind. Because who wants to travel across the country to the West Coast to play a conference game? 
You know, Mountaineers don't want to get on a plane and fly over and play UCLA. And guess what? UCLA doesn't want to fly over here and play West Virginia and Morgantown. So if that big – look, the Big 12 thing with West Virginia already doesn't make any sense. That's, that's already stupid. Now you're going to move further west? No. Ultimately, the best thing the best thing for West Virginia is for the Big 12 and Pac-12 to merge and West Virginia get in the ACC. They, they don't want to land in the AAC. Go to the ACC. The ACC, for whatever reason, they didn't want – West Virginia the first time, they'll want them the second time. And then, which would also be kind of a, a little trickle down, which would be great, You can that'll rekindle the West Virginia pit thing in the ACC and West Virginia Boston College and West Virginia Syracuse and West Virginia Louisville. I sign up for that. It, just, it would be just like, uh, you know, a little Big East reunion in the ACC. We'll see what happens. Again, long ways away. None of this happens until Texas and Oklahoma officially leave for the SEC. But, like you heard uh, the AD say there, these things don't happen overnight. Texas and OU is probably talking about it six, eight, ten months in advance. So you know there are talks right now about what happens after that with the Big 12, Pac-12, and whoever else. All right, one more break, and then back to wrap things up. Stick around, WCMD. This is the Morning Rush. Uh, Let's check on the player who delivered, brought to you uh, once again by All Seasons Landscaping and Supply Yard. How about, and uh, cover your ears, uh, Nats fans, the Phillies' uh, Reese Hoskins. The 1-1, swing and a drive, left center field. It's well hit. Yadiel Hernandez won't get it. It's going to the wall. One run will score. Harper flying around third. He will score, and Reese Hoskins has come through. A two-run double. The call on WIP, Hoskins with that two-run double as part of a four-run ninth inning as Philadelphia rallied past Washington 7-6 to complete a Four-game sweep in D.C. Philly has now won five straight overall to move to within a half game of the Mets for first in the NL East. Those two teams, by the way, Mets and Phils, uh, play this weekend. So, Reese Hoskins, your player who delivered yesterday, uh, brought to you by All Seasons Landscaping and Supply Yard. Put that there in uh, file 13. I saw uh, some sad news, uh, Major League Baseball. Uh, J.R. Richard. And if you are around my era, my time frame, you remember J.R. Richard. uh, Pitched for the Astros uh, for 10 years. He passed away uh, yesterday. Uh, He was 71 years old. And you talk about the epitome of a power pitcher. uh, That was J.R. Richard. In 10 seasons with the Astros, he won 107 games. Had an ERA of 3.15 and almost 1,500 strikeouts. He led the National League in strikeouts twice. Uh, His career was unfortunately cut short in 1980. He had a a stroke in 1980. Had 313 strikeouts in 1979, which, by the way, was uh, Houston's single-season record until Garrett Cole broke it in 2019. So that record stood for, what is that, 40 years until uh, Cole passed it up? Uh, J.R. Richards still ranks, he's tied for second in Astros history for career ERA, and he's third in strikeouts behind uh, Nolan Ryan and Roy Oswald. Remember Roy Oswald? That's a name I haven't heard in forever. 
Uh, Richard is still fifth in Astros history in wins and shutouts. And again, power pitcher. I mean, he stood at 6'8". He was a very intimidating presence on the mound was uh, J.R. Richard. He was a little bit wild, too. And when you're throwing 100 miles per hour, that definitely uh, adds into the intimidation. Uh, Let's see. 76 complete games. Won a career-best 20 games in 1976. That was the first of four straight seasons with at least 18 wins. Now, unfortunately, Jr. he fell on some bad times after his career was over. At some, at, at, he had a bunch of bad investments, failed businesses, and he was actually he, bri- he was briefly homeless uh, in the mid 90s. He eventually got his life back together and worked as a minister in his later years. So, uh, Jr. Richard, the Houston Astros great, uh, passed away yesterday at the age of uh, 71. Astros did not give any more detail on on his passing uh, aside from that. Uh, don't forget, tonight we have Nationals baseball. The Nats uh, trying to snap a four-game losing streak as they uh, take on the Braves in Atlanta for a weekend series. Uh, we'll have that game for you, a pregame at 6.50. Again, if you missed uh, any of today's show, especially that interview Uh, that Joe Shuda did with uh, 1972 gold medal winner Dave Waddle. Uh, That'll be on uh, the podcast page on the free Podbean app uh, later on uh, this morning, whenever I get around to it, as I dance between, you know, the multitude of things I have to do uh, before I get out of here. That's all I got. Maybe I should just sing a song for the uh, the last 40 seconds. (laughs) <laughs> oh, that's right. I forgot. Uh, Monday. Tune in Monday, 7 o'clock. Big, big show announcement for you. Monday at 7. You don't want to miss it. So, uh, you know, synchronize your watches. Put it in your calendar. Set an alarm. Do whatever you have to do. A big show announcement coming uh, this Monday at uh, 7 o'clock. So there you go. Lots of stuff going on this weekend. Enjoy. What else? We got Olympics wrapping up, right? No football. We got Hall of Fame inductions this weekend, tomorrow and Sunday. I think, what is the number? 84 people getting get inducted. A lot of people going to the Hall this weekend. Don't want to miss that. Of course, we'll talk about all of that on Monday. As well as what happened in baseball. Bucks, Nats, O's trying to get back to the winning ways this weekend. And again, uh, that big announcement coming up Monday at 7 o'clock. All right. Uh, thank you for listening. The man is coming up next. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you back here Monday, uh, 6 a.m. sharp. This is the Morning Rush. I am Tony C., and I am done. Bye.